everyone. Welcome to Your Amigos podcast. Uh, Tom and I are here with Danny Hang, our friend and colleague. Uh, and we're going to talk about the IMDC classification and its history and what is its role and sort of current therapy and modern therapy. So, Danny, Danny, welcome. Danny, before you kick off, how emotionally attached are you? Because I've got to pitch this right. How emotionally attached are you to this classification? I mean, it's named after you. Yes, I'm quite emotionally attached to it. But <laughs> okay, this could time... go wrong. This could go wrong. I've got, I've got some tricky questions. I've got to tell you. All right. There could be tears. You. There could be tears. It's okay. okay. I can deal with it. <laughs> so, Danny, um, well, maybe you could briefly introduce yourself. Uh, and then why don't we start with, you know, where this effort came from going back. I think, gosh, it was what, 2009 was the first publication. Like, just so people understand the initial data set. Obviously, it's expanded tremendously since that time. But maybe, maybe let's start there. Sure. Thanks, everyone. And uh, honored to be here. I love the Euro Amigos. Uh, I'm in um, Edinburgh. It's not going to make the questions any easier, Danny, being nice. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm with Tom and Brian right now. And, um, you know, the IMDC first published in 2009. It was a collection of 645 patients, uh, six institutions. And it uh, started when I was doing my fellowship with Brian and with Ron Bukowski at the Cleveland Clinic. And we identified and externally validated uh, some uh, criteria from the initial MSKCC criteria and added more. So as you know, there are six criteria. Uh, If you have none of those criteria, you're favorable risk. If you have one or two of those criteria, intermediate risk, uh, three or more of those criteria, you're poor risk. And it's evolved over the years. It wasn't really used at the beginning, but ever since the Checkmate 214 trial that demonstrated Ipinevo was better than sunitinib in intermediate and poor risk patients, but not in favorable risk patients. So we should only use ipinevo in intermediate and poor risk and, patients. And Danny, just to go, that's just to go back, the, the initial data set was patients treated with VEGF-targeted therapy at the time, right? Largely sunitinib. Right. Is that correct? And were they all frontline yeah. patients or no? I don't remember. Oh, that, that's a good point. So uh, there was a small proportion of patients that had interferon uh, and then second line targeted well, therapy. We started counting their targeted therapy. Uh, we started counting their systemic therapy at the targeted therapy. Okay. Uh, that counted for a small amount of patients. But you're absolutely right. It was in the VEGF era. Uh, so uh, we needed to update it uh, for the IO era. Danny, I apologize for that rude interruption from Brian. <laughs> um, <laughs> Add to that, and many of these parameters, calcium, hemoglobin, platelet count, what do they really represent? Because, you know, they're obviously not representing the biology of the disease. None of these parameters look at a particular biomarker. And we know the drugs we have, the angiogenic drugs and the immune drugs, are likely to be responsive, dependent on some biomarkers. Do you, what, what do these hemoglobin cast, what do these actually represent biologically, these factors? Good question. I think they are actually surrogates for the biology of the tumor. So as we all know, ECOG performance status or Kronofsky performance status is always prognostic in almost everything in oncology. But things like hemoglobin, neutrophil count, platelet count, that kind of accounts for the inflammatory milieu uh, and uh, how much tumor burden there is. If you have a time from diagnosis to uh, time from diagnosis to treatment interval of less than one year, that counts for 
how fast the tumor is growing. And so if your time from diagnosis to treatment interval is very long, maybe you have a very indolent disease course and better prognosis. If it's very short, that means it's faster, marching along quicker. And so, um, and the calcium, uh, it's a marker of hypercalcemia. You can get that with uh, perineoplastic syndromes, which are usually associated with higher bulk disease as well, uh, or bone metastases, which is also associated with a poor prognosis. So I think these, all these factors kind of indirectly get at the biology of how bad the tumor is. And it's really, I mean, you know, I think of, because it was derived from VEGF-treated patients, it's in essence a measure of VEGF responsiveness and or indolent disease, right? Those faithless, for favorable risk patients specifically, right? They're either really indolent naturally, patients we might observe, or they just have wildly VEGF responsive disease. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, it's also applicable to uh, the IO-treated therapy uh, patients because, um, you know, there's also data, for example, in Emotion 151, Brian, you're, um, uh, you're uh, the first author on it, um, you know, breaking patients down into different clusters of, uh, of responsiveness. So, you know, maybe clusters one and two, patients that belong in patients one and two uh, are highly VEGF responsive, where other clusters like four and five might be more IO responsive. And it's interesting that that tracks with the IMDC criteria. So the IMDC criteria, there are way more cluster one and two patients in the favorable risk category. And there's a lot less of them in the poor risk category. Danny, when I spend time with the Ipinevo Clapton Markovs, which I do spend an unnatural <laughs> amount of time with those curves, <laughs> uh, what, what I discover is actually that in the favorable risk patients, the survival for Ipinevo is not that different from the intermediate and poor. And so the three Kaplan-Meier curves for favorable, intermediate and poor are very similar to each other. And actually it's the VEGF targeted therapy. It's the sunitinib arm, which is really discriminatory in that the poorest patients do really poorly, obviously, and the good risk patients keep up. In fact, even at the beginning, they do better than, um, than, than Ipinevo. And so I put it to you, that the classification is of no help for patients with immune therapy. Yeah, I think some people think that, and, and let's. let's <laughs> and they're wrong. <laughs> some really dumb polite. people <laughs> think that. That was very polite. Danny. Very polite. <laughs> yeah, one of those people. Um, you know, I think we continue to learn more about that arm, the favorable risk arm, as time passes and as we accrue more data. The IMDC criteria was definitely made for prognosis. It wasn't necessarily made for prediction. It kind of accidentally stumbled upon prediction because in the uh, Checkmate two fourteen trial, there was that stark difference between the favorable risk and intermediate and poor risk individuals. Now that we know more, um, you know, one of my favorite graphs from the Checkmate 214 study, uh, and I love spending time with those graphs too. The we can spend some time with this graph tonight. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Um, but, you know, there's this chart that looks at all the ipinevo treated patients, and across all of the IMDC prognostic factors, the response rate is always 40%. Whereas um, with TKI, with the sunitinib arm, across all of the IMDC prognostic factors, the more prognostic factors you have, the worse you end up doing in terms of overall response rate. And so it's not necessarily that Ipinevo is great at treating intermediate poor risk individuals. It's more that sunitinib and, and those TKIs, older TKIs are really bad at treating intermediate and poor risk individuals. The response rates drop down to 13%, for example. And so I think that's taught us a lot. 
uh, about you know what uh, they do in the feral risk cohort, uh, it's about 40%, whereas in the uh, BEJF treated cohort, it's about 50%. So Danny, I, you, you yeah, brought up the ahead. clusters, the 151 clusters. In the in IMDC favorable, it was about 60% cluster one and two, 60% angiogenesis. But that still leaves, you know, 40%, that's something else. And I think cluster four and five in that, in favorable risk, I don't remember the exact numbers, maybe it's 15%. So isn't there, when we classify people with clinical parameters, aren't we missing all that detail, right? We're missing that biologic heterogeneity that exists within favorable or within an intermediate poor. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because there's no way six um, clinical factors can capture all of the biology, all of the stuff that we could see in um, RNA-seq and DNA analyses uh, that deep dive into a patient's tumor. There is a lot of heterogeneity and individual um, uh, individual patient things that, that aren't taken into account. And so we do want to improve on the IMDC criteria. We want to add things like these clusters we, or, or the CCRCC classifications in Europe or, you know, there, there are other classifications that are available too. We'd like to add them to the IMDC criteria and see whether or not we improve the predictive, not necessarily prognostic, but we'd love to improve the prognostic ability as well of the IMDC criteria. Now, Danny, I'm happy to talk about the future, but we have to cover the past first. Let's, <laughs> let's do it. Let's talk about that Ipinevo decision. As things currently stand in those favorable risk population, it's fair to say that there doesn't seem to be any preferred treatment. One could say that the current hazard ratio for Ipinevo with the longest follow-up at 0.94 is lower than the hazard ratio for VEGF-TKI IO combinations, and that it's possible or likely that there are subsets within that good risk population that really need immune therapy, perhaps even uh, VEGF, sorry, perhaps even CTLA-4 therapy, ipilimumab, but are not getting it because they're being driven it away, driven away from it because of the IMDC classification. I think the favorable <laughs> risk category is um, harder because, you know, they have very good characteristics. They live for a very long time. Uh, the median survival in the VEGF therapy era is 50, like 45 months. And in, the, uh, and in the IO therapy, it's much, much longer. So you need to wait a lot longer before you actually get that signal of whether or not one's better than the other. And you're right, in the very beginning, it actually looked quite poor. Uh, the response rates were poor. Progression-free survival is poor in the favorable risk arm um, uh, treated with ipinivo versus uh, sunitinib. Now, you mentioned that the hazard ratio is 0 0.94. It's the only one out of all of the um, uh, IO combination therapies that we have with, uh, I, uh, with a hazard ratio less than one, but it's not statistically significant. And 0 0.94, I counter, is very close to one. And so I think it's really important not to uh, pick it apart too much because statistically, it wasn't designed to look at it. And statistically, it's not statistically significant. And Danny, so I think the jury is still out on that. Danny, you were in the room today, Mike. Mike Atkins stood up and talked about at the, uh, uh, the, the IKCS meeting. He said in his good risk patients, he's going to give IP Nevo uh, or give single agent Nevo. I don't agree with him, but do you, what, what do you think about that statement that he's made? Because if that's the case and he's giving it to good, intermediate and poorest patients, then you can say the classification doesn't really select anyone who needs immune therapy. 
Yeah, I mean, Mike is a very learned oncologist. I really respect That's him. That's very and polite. He has as a well, lot Danny. of. Uh, <laughs> he has a lot. I'm Canadian. I have to be polite. Uh, <laughs> I think, um, uh, and he has a lot of experience in the melanoma patients. Uh, the melanoma is different from RCC. I think that um, you know there is a subgroup absolutely correct, a favorable risk patients that probably do need immunotherapy, that probably would benefit from ipinevo. And one just needs to point to the complete response rates. The complete response rates are higher in the favorable risk arm uh, for ipinevo versus sunitinib. But the difference is about 5%. And so it's really hard to treat everyone, the whole population for these 5%. But if you're one of those 5%, you want to be one of those 5%. So I think if you did do that, you'd have to tell people, well, this isn't in the guidelines. In the guidelines, it does not say favorable risk patients. I can use ipinevo. Uh, but do you want to take, you know, do you want to try this out? And do you want to uh, potentially... Um, be one of those 5% of people. I don't say that to my patients because I think it's a bit unfair uh, to put that on patients uh, because it's such a small number. And I wish that if we had some sort of biomarker uh, like the cluster analysis or the CCRCC uh, uh, clusters, um, if they, that could tell us, oh yeah, this favorable risk patient really needs ipinevo, then I'm all for it. I would want that. But right now we're not at that stage yet. We don't have that data. Danny, can I change tack? Can we move to those poorest patients? Cosmic 313, ipinevo versus cabo ipinevo. So the addition of cabo to ipinevo, it showed in the poorest patients that the addition of VEGF targeted therapy didn't make any difference to mm -hmm. PFS. That was surprising because in poorest patients, we're wanting to give VEGF targeted therapy because we feel those poorest patients with rapidly progressive bone disease and we want to get control. So what's going on in that population, in that poorest population where we want to give VEGF targeted therapy, but the data is pushing us away from it? How does the classification yeah. help us there? I agree. The data is pushing us away from using triplet therapy in poor risk disease. And I wonder if a bunch of things are going on. It's multifactorial. You know, uh, earlier we said the higher risk, the more prognostic factors you have, the more poor risk you are, the more you need immunotherapy because VEGF targeted therapy adds very little, a response rate of 13%, for example, with sunitinib. And so um, I guess it's not too surprising in the poor risk individuals, if you get added to TKI to ipinevo, maybe not much happens because the additive benefit of uh, sunitinib isn't that much. And I think the other thing that complicates it is, um, you know, it is, it, there are more toxicities associated with it. So do you stop more uh, the ipinevo? Um, uh, I think, uh, Tom, you showed that data uh, the last GU ASCO where uh, there wasn't much of a difference between the intermediate and poor risk individuals, but maybe it was enough to push it so that there was no difference uh, Brian, in, in, can in I ask, terms of the triplet. Brian, can I ask you the same two questions? Just tell me what your thinking is around that good risk group and how you're approaching those patients and how this classification helps you if at all and the same around that poor risk with the data sets available to us that weren't available a year or two ago i mean i don't really use imdc to make treatment decisions brian, you know? <laughs> brian that's, that's even worse than my question <laughs> i love this i use it from a prognostic standpoint right if i'm talking to patients i find that very helpful but i don't 
I'm not choosing different treatments based on different IMDC at present. So I, so I don't use it for that part. I think in terms okay, of... Okay, so cor- tell me your thinking because you're swimming in the wrong direction. Um, <laughs> uh, tell me your thinking about how, how you can justify that in good risk disease. What do you mean how I can justify it? Okay, you're, so you said you're happy to give Ipinevo in good risk disease potentially. Because you give well, it like to, to, but I don't know who to give it to, and I think, right, giving it based on IMDC, like like Danny said, you'd kind of have to give it to everybody, right, to identify that immune responsive subset. When we know probably sixty percent that is going to be angiogenic responses. So if you're just betting, right, if you're saying statistically, what's the highest likelihood of response? Well, it's to include an angiogenesis inhibitor in that subset based on the biology. What about then in the poorest patients? Because I'm sure you're going to give VEGF targeted therapy. This, I mean, I'm giving, no. Primary progression of poor risk patients really frightens me. And Epinevo is not great at getting control of disease. I'm giving those patients Lempen. Right. But but that's a little bit born out of desperation, right? As you accumulate accumulate (laughs) IMDC risk factors, as Danny said, you accumulate inflammatory risk factors and you become less and less VEGF responsive, right? The two on four data you cited, et cetera. So it's not at all surprising that when you look at poor risk patients, they're just not that VEGF responsive. But right? but they are a bit because well, a bit, the, yeah. with the Len Pen data, you only have five percent progression yep. as the best response. Whereas with Ipinevo, that's much higher than that. So it that that flies well, in, in the, the face ICC, of this. not just in poor risk, but yeah. Yeah, there's some responsiveness. And I don't remember like the angiogenic cluster percentage in poor risk. I think it's still like 20, 30 percent. So and again, that's my whole point is that when we when we put people into buckets defined by clinical parameters, we're missing a lot of the granularity. It's it, it's all we have now. Okay. Right? We have okay, Brian. So what treatment totally are you giving agree. poorest yeah. patients? Which what treatment so, are you giving poorest as, as patients? You know, I, I tend to give IOTKI. Yes. But it, and Danny, what about you? Um, I think people that really need a response, I give IOTKI. But for people that don't desperately need a response, because there are some poor risk individuals that don't desperately need a, a response, I do give Ipinevo because I feel like um, that doublet um, might be better. The more poor risk you are, the more you benefit from immunotherapy is what I think. Do you think, as we said in the good risk patients, and you rejected quite eloquently, do you think in the poorest patients, this classification could be misleading because some people might say oh i should be giving them ipinevo not vegf tki io and lose control well see in the poorest patients there's no direction because in the poorest direct uh, patients in the guidelines you can give anything you can give ipinevo lambatin pembro any anything and so uh, i think how clinicians decide is probably how badly they need a response um, or how badly do they need the tail of the curve because ipinevo still has that durability um, even in poor risk individuals you know 50 percent of people at 18 months are still alive with ipinevo you can't get that with vegf therapy we just need other drugs in poorest patients, right? We need drugs with mechanisms that we don't have yet, right? That mm-hmm. hit targets that we, either we haven't identified or just don't have drugs against. Yeah. Well, yeah. The bar's been moved quite significantly, though. If you look back in the original trials, the original Kaplan-Meier for poorest patients, you know, median survival was six or seven months or whatever. And that bar's been shifted massively for sure. in another direction. Yeah, for sure. So I think, you know, we should, I mean, Brian, you've been involved in a lot. Of that. You shouldn't be too hard on yourself. You look at what we're doing in urothelial cancer. We're really struggling. So I, I wasn't I think, being hard on myself. So I think, great, I think you we've both done are great. Amazing. I'm not. I certainly haven't I done any of this. But amazing. I think 
the, the key piece, a piece I'm asking is we've made huge progress. You know, median survival of overall survival um, has gone from 12 months to five years. Yeah, in, for sure. Uh, so for so that's sure. a, a big, but I'm just saying, is the is this classification still helping us? And that's the question I'm asking. So Danny, Mike, it's, it's, Mike it's, what do we have left to deal with? You know, like all of the clinical trials use this classification. And so now this is what, that's what we're left to deal with. So we have to interpret the data as such. I wish we had a classification that had the IMDC criteria plus other things like clusters uh, to, to drill it down a little bit more. And until we have that, I think this is the data that we have. It looks like we've lost Danny briefly. Um, <laughs> he was so despondent at your questions. Oh, Danny, you're, oh, Danny back? you're back with us. Sorry, you, you jumped out for a second there. Could you just go back in? Because that sentence was going super well and you were just winning the argument and then you cut out. I didn't do it on purpose, I promise. Oh, he's oh. left us for a second. So, <laughs> he left us. <laughs> so I think there are three clear options here. There's option one, which is we continue as we are with the classification. Option two, we modify the classification with the biology that we have. Or mm. option three, Brian, which is we do something completely different. We start again, because sometimes it's easier just to say, look, this has been really helpful up to now, but now we want to start again. Which of those yeah. three options do you think we should do? Well, I think it's I think it's one and two, right? We're going to keep using it. It's good for prognostication. It's good when you're um, characterizing a trial. Right. And we always compare across trials to say, well, you know, were these roughly similar in terms of IMDC? It's one measure of comparability. But we absolutely need to build on it, as Danny said, with biology. And obviously, there's a lot of efforts going on to do that. It's much easier said than done. I, I don't think scrapping it and coming up with new clinical factors, I don't think that moves the needle. I'm not sure that makes us any smarter or takes better care of patients. Do we need, though? to be driven more by the biology of the disease and kidney cancer yes. because these indirect classifications are leaving some patients behind. Yeah, and we absolutely do, right? And so, you know, us and others are doing biomarker-based trials, which are really challenging to do, but, but super important, right? And, and ideally, a patient would come in and we'd characterize their tumor and we'd say, oh, you can get away with IO monotherapy or you need triplet therapy or something. We're, we're a long way from that, but I think we... Are making steps towards it but i still feel like we're a long way is the biomarker that we need out there now and should we be doing trials with these biomarkers or are you worried that for example in the study you're doing you're using the wrong biomarker because if we um, if we do the wrong trials at this point and we use the wrong biomarkers and it doesn't work people say well actually we did the biomarker strategies they failed and therefore because launching biomarker trials is risky because if they're negative yep. you got can't, can't do it again. Well, I mean, so with our trial, which is cluster-based, it's not, it's really just the first step, right? I mean, we'll have all the RNA-seq data on every single patient. So you could, we could hypothesize that cluster one and two with IOTKL do better, but maybe it's not both clusters. Maybe it's one, or maybe it's one and half of two, but we'll have all the data. Do you know what I mean? So it's just a first step of combining clinical and biomarker-based therapy, but it's not by no means the last step.
Danny, we yeah, these uh, trials we... are really hard to do, right? These trials are really hard to do. Like the bionic trial was just um, uh, presented last week. At, uh, I mean, uh, GU ASCO, and the patient N was really small. But even then, uh, you know, they were able to show that you know one of the clusters you might not need ipinevo. Maybe sunitinib is just good enough uh, for those VEGF-driven people. And it's that kind of data that's really helpful. We just need it on a larger scale, and we just need it in addition to what we currently have, like the IMDC criteria. Danny, we're really pleased you're back because while you were away, we really did sink what this happened? battleship. <laughs> but, 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 we talked about you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but Danny, from what... Toronto called me on my phone and then and so it, it knocked me off the recording. So yeah. uh, uh, sorry about that. Danny, what I'd like you to do now is I'd like you to give a two-minute speech at the end about why you think we should continue to use this classification and what you're going to do in the future. And then Brian and I will mark you out of 10 at the end. <laughs> That's great. I love it. I love it. I have an eight-year-old in school, so I know exactly how this feels. Uh, uh, we have to do book talks at, at school. So, you know, uh, the IMDC criteria, uh, the six factors uh, developed in VEGF-targeted therapy. We just published benchmarks uh, in European Urology last month uh, to show that with IOIO and IOVEGF therapy, uh, the benchmarks for overall survival are markedly better compared to the VEGF therapy arm, and that there's still a favorable, intermediate, and poor risk category. And the favorable always does better than intermediate, always does better than poor, except in ipinevo favorable risk where it's fairly similar. And so uh, we do continue to use the IMTC criteria to prognosticate. I think that's where the most power comes from in terms of prognostication. And now we have updated benchmarks for it. In terms of predictive factors, it was really never built to be predictive, but, it, but it's um, uh, become the only thing that we have uh, in terms of approvals uh, because of the way trials were built. And so for favorable risk individuals, uh, I, uh, the choices are IO-VEGF therapy or VEGF therapy. I don't use ipinevo in those individuals. Uh, it's not in the guidelines to use ipinevo in those individuals. Um, maybe one day the data will change. Maybe a biomarker will say uh, one day that in this favorable risk individual, oh, it has this biomarker. Maybe it's PDL1. Uh, maybe it's a cluster five or six uh, that will tell me, oh yeah, this favorable risk patient should get ipinevo. But until that comes, uh, I'm not comfortable exposing people uh, to the cost and toxicity um, uh, at the moment uh, on a population level. For intermediate risk and poor risk patients, you can use any of those treatments, any of those combinations. Uh, and in terms of triplet therapy, we're not quite there yet in terms of adopting it um, for everyone. I think we're still looking for overall survival data. Uh, and it is interesting in the poor risk individuals that triplet therapy didn't benefit, but maybe it's because TKIs aren't very helpful when you add it to uh, very powerful immunotherapy in the poor risk disease. Because I think, you know, for me, the poor risk your individual patient is, the more they need immunotherapy. How's okay. that? Very good. Danny, it was 10 out of 10 <laughs> for me, but to get 11 out of 10, I just want to hear about what you want to do Overachiever. next. Overachiever. Yeah, what, I want to hear um, about what you want to do next. What I want to do next is collaborate with people uh, um, with the cluster analyses, add uh, the uh, clusters to the IMDC criteria because the, the trials are already built that way. So you might as well use that um, and see how we can predict. So Brian's doing a phase two trial looking at uh, this uh, and seeing if we can nail it down a little bit more. And we probably need something bigger after that. Uh, so I think that would be the next step to add these clusters or biomarkers 
changes to the IMDC criteria. And I think that will probably happen in the next five years. I'm excited about that. But Jamie, just love- final comments for me. First of all, congratulations on this. Obviously, you've built sort of an empire here that's impacted the field. And then I think what you said to me that was most important is that it wasn't built to be predictive, right? It was built to be prognostic. And I think that's its greatest strength. I think that's just an important reminder. Danny, this has been fan- fabulous. Um, thank you for, for putting up with me and Brian, particularly my <laughs> awful questions. I'll see you downstairs so out of the lobby in a few minutes. <laughs> Thanks very see much, everyone. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.